Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When our worth displaces from just having it to having to collect it, you'll be collecting it all day long and you'll still come home and stare through yourself in the mirror and see nothing. If that's, if that's all you think your worth is based on, is what you've achieved or who you know or what you've done or how hard you've worked or how, in my, in my context, like how little I've eaten and how little I weigh and how long I've exercised. If that's what we have to wake up to and achieve every single day in order for us to be alive in this world, that's a really, really painful way to live. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Iona, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you. Um, I found out about you because you have a new book out called Ghost, and uh, you wrote me this beautiful handwritten letter uh, about why you thought you'd be a great guest. And as I was saying, when I went and looked at your website, there were certain things that just immediately caught my attention. So on that note, uh, I would like to start by asking you, where in the world were you born and raised? And what impact has that ended up having on what you've done with your life and your career? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Scotland, the west coast of Scotland. Um, many, well, maybe not many, but perhaps you've heard of Glasgow. I was born just outside of Glasgow, which is the largest city in Scotland, which is not really saying very much for 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 sizes of cities. Um, but I grew up there, and I moved to the US in two thousand and nine when I was recruited to play Division One field hockey at Syracuse University. 
Um, and I think actually even that experience made me feel more Scottish in a way. I think there's something to be said for leaving somewhere in order for you to realize what it even really means to you. And I never really thought of myself as Scottish growing up. It wasn't an identity. But once I moved to the US, it became a major identifier for me because, of course, everyone was like, oh, where are you from? As soon as I said anything, and it made me feel very exotic. I was like, oh, goodness, in Scotland, I was very normal. And here I feel like a kind of exotic flamingo because everyone's asking me, oh, my goodness, giving me all these compliments about my accent and things like that. But um, I would say one of the, the major things that has shaped me growing up Scottish and in Scotland was very much the sweeping under the rug of things. Um, that was very much an experience that I think perhaps a lot of British people can relate to. It's not so much that Scotland has that stiff upper lip. I would say that's a bit more English in a way, but it's a similar sort of toughen up. We're not going to talk about that. Um, I wouldn't say emotional literacy was something that was particularly high for me. And I think that really shaped a lot of my life experience in, in many ways. Yeah. So, you know, I, I always find it, of course, as an immigrant, to me, it's always fascinating when people come from another country to the United States. What are the things that you noticed that were shocking to you when you first got here, having grown up in another country? Like, what did you notice about the American culture that you were either horrified by? And, and what parts of it did you love that you didn't love uh, in Scotland? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I when I arrived here, the first thing I noticed was just sheer scale, the size of life. And I'm talking about just even the size, <laughs> of, size of the roads, size of the cars, just the excess, the how much space that people were taking up, just even sort of driving down the street. Everything felt like it had been increased in size um, compared to the way that, compared to the little narrow streets and the little cars that I was used to of driving around in and walking down the street on, everything just felt inflated, uh, which was really quite overwhelming um, when I first moved here. And then there's one thing I'll always remember, it was in the first couple of days of being in the US, was someone held the door for me and I said, thank you. And they responded with, yep. And it was so bizarre because it filtered through my system as so oddly dismissive I don't know if it was like the intonation at the end of it or just this kind of I'd never people don't say yep in Scotland and I remember being like oh my goodness this person is so rude <laughs> and then I, I kind of walked around my life in the U.S. for a couple of weeks I was like oh no this is just this is just something that people say and then I'll catch myself saying it now I'm like oh my god I've assimilated no um <laughs> But that was that was such an odd little kind of micro moment that actually mm. shaped a lot of how I felt. I was like these interactions with folks don't always necessarily feel anything above surface level, and that was kind of yeah. an odd little experience for me to have. Um, and I don't know if I've maybe just not met my people yet, but I do remember just like the tone and the size of the country feeling odd to me. Um, but I will say that something that I am eternally grateful for, and it's probably the only reason that I'm in the sort of space where I am now and I've even written a book, is that moving to the US 
really gave me a lot more permission to talk about feelings. Um, mm. And it wasn't even that, like, I'm not saying that a high-performance sporting environment was the place where I learned that, but just being, it just felt like this country was more advanced in that way around being open about things. I'll be glib, like, even, like, talking about going to the toilet, that was something that was, like, not allowed to be talked about in my childhood. And then all my all my teammates were, like, throwing that around, like, it was it was just common currency. and that sort of translated that kind of openness. It took me a few years to get into it. But once I did, it really was a huge part in my own journey into becoming more of a human. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love that. What did you notice uh, in particular about, you know, sort of cultural values? I mean, I think it's interesting you pointed out that everything seemed so big in terms of scale, because I remember one of my friends came from India and I was asking her, like, what stands out to you here? She said the just sheer volume of advertising everywhere. It seems mm -hmm. like you can't drive down a single road without a commercial, which I thought was, you know, funny because in India there's billboards and traffic everywhere. It's insanity. Um, but I wonder, you know, what you noticed in particular about sort of values culturally, you know, from a family value standpoint to a social value standpoint that was different from where you grew up? I think the the biggest one, and again, I'm always curious about what our cultural values and what were just sort of my internal value system or, or my experience of being raised in my childhood and life experiences, but something that was so, um, I don't know if the word is shocking, but very different from my experience was the tightness of what I would call adult children, my like my teammates that I spent like the first years of my life in the US with, with their families. There was like a real tightness to, to that family relationship. Um, and parents were very involved in decision making and cheerleading their children and things like that that again I'm not I don't know if that's something that is a universal experience but it was very different than where than my experience of growing up which was a bit more you know like you're figuring this out and we're supportive my family were very supportive but they weren't ingratiated with me in that same way and I do remember finding that fascinating that parents were driving eight 10, sometimes like I think even 12 hours to watch their daughters play field hockey every weekend. Like that was, that was fascinating to me. Like that just wouldn't yeah. happen at home. Um, I think that's probably the most, the most glaring example that I had early on. Yeah, it's funny because I think that, you know, there's a similarity, I think, with Indian people, too. Like, you know, I mean, my dad was basically doing postdoctoral work and building his career while I was growing up. So he missed plenty of basketball games, um, you know, a lot of events. I mean, and, you know, I wasn't a good good athlete, so I don't blame him. Uh, he showed up for the things that really counted to me and the ones that mattered. And, you know, I was a great musician and he showed up for my concerts. But uh, so the. Other thing I wonder about is, is you know, you're growing up, you know, I, I know from from having read the book, you have this almost overachiever uh, mindset very deeply instilled in, in, you know, your life. Where did that come from? Oh, it's a good, it's a really good question. I, I find the construction of identity such a fascinating one. Um, and I think that often it gets kind of explained away within the nurture nature model. And I think that's, I think it's a wonderful model, 
And I also don't think it quite sinks through the levels of what creates a human being, what creates identity, what is personality and what is just a trauma response in a way to the way we've been told that we are in this world. Um, in Ghost, I write a lot about the construction of my identity as a high achiever or as a what I would call a perfect, a perfect child, and then ultimately a high achieving, struggling woman. And I can't tell you exactly. I don't think I don't think it does justice to the to the creation of identity. See, I know exactly what it is, but my experience of it was that identity was a web of untruths in many ways. Like we become mirrors and absorbers and reflectors of what other people tell us is true about ourselves, especially in those formative years when we're still very malleable and kind of not perhaps consciously understanding what it even means to be a person. Um, And something that certainly was my experience is, again, I can't say this enough, like my My parents were wonderful people, and yet there were stories around the type of person that I was, that I was a black sheep or that I was a little bit different or a little bit contrary, and this became my identity. And in the book, I talk a lot about, like I use the analogy of the spider and that identity is a web that's first spun by others, and then at a certain point we become the spider. We become the collector of evidence. We spin our own webs about the person that we are in this world and how we're supposed to be in this world and the expectations on how we function in this world. And that is when identity solidifies, when we become active participants in the creation of it. And that's when over time, if the stories aren't necessarily true, but are more just assumptions or thoughts or opinions, which is really all anything is about humans anyway, that is when life can start to get very painful. When the identity that's been constructed about us actually starts to kind of strangle us by the neck. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that's what really struck me so much was that, you know, here you are, this person who has achieved things that I'm sure my parents would find more impressive than my own accomplishments, like, you know, Google on a resume, you know, Division One athlete, all this. Um, I, so I want to come back to that. But one of the things I wonder, I always am curious uh, when I talk to people who have played sports in college or in any other capacity, because uh, my journey of team sports ended in seventh grade after being the most improved player on the basketball team, which just means you're the shittiest player on the team. Um, and in Texas, people are, you know, seventh graders are the size of grown men. So scrawny Indian <laughs> kid doesn't have much of a future in anything athletic. But I wonder, because every time I talk to somebody who has either played college or high school sports, I feel like it's this incredibly formative experience that gave them, you know, so many gifts that have allowed them to accomplish what they have. And I wonder what those were for you. Oh, my goodness. It's such a great question. Um, sport made me a winner. And it made me a winner at any cost, honestly. And I say that and I think it's almost one of the cruelest jokes about all of this because sport gave me an opportunity to I would like to express dominance like I had these gifts and I knew how to use them and it allowed me to express them and um, in perhaps a way that you know a good little private girl a private school school girl doesn't but like on the on the hockey field like you can ask anyone who used to play against me I was an animal I loved that I loved fighting to the death even the um like the school that I went to when I was in Scotland we weren't 
the team that were winning everything. We were very much, our school was very much classified as the underdog. And I just loved that because I still felt like I could win and feel powerful and feel athletic um, and achieve something in this very kind of human, but also kind of mammalian way. And it taught me how to win. And that mentality of like fighting to the death, I think it's a wonderful thing in the sense it can be a huge mobilizer and motivator and it can be a really vibrant creator. If you're willing to go all the way in pursuit of something that you want, that's going to serve you beautifully in what I'll often call the collection of glitter, <laughs> like that fight to the death. Like you'll, you can win pretty much anything with that mentality. You can achieve pretty much anything with that mentality, but what's the cost? Yeah, that's um, what I was going to literally yeah. those, because the, the words that caught my attention the most were when you said win at all costs. And that's where I was headed. That's why I was going to ask you, what's the downside? Paying with your life like paying with your happiness, paying with your sense of peace, paying with, like I talked about how it made me feel like almost animalistic. It definitely took me away from how that that approach to life took me away from my own humanity at a certain point. Because when you have the capacity to like work like a sled dog or work to the bone or however you want to talk about it, when you know that you have the capacity to work that way, it's hard to switch it off when you're in the rhythm of it. And so I always talk about the way we are one place in our life is often the way we are everywhere, just in the same way that trust can generalize, fear can generalize, pain can generalize. And there was a huge portion of my life where I was feeding on, feeding on pain. And it manifested in, I mean, it made me a wonderful athlete. It, per, it helped me find my way into jobs and roles that perhaps I didn't have any qualifications for. It got me a green card. Um, it also manifested as an absolutely excruciating battle with food in my body that had to get slammed on the floor, basically, for me to stop. Um, and I think that that's so often the experience of high achieving people, whether or not you have a sporting background or not, when you know you have a high capacity for tolerating what other people would view as just like extreme suffering, when you know you can endure that and you know that you'll get the glitter at the end of it, it can it takes a lot to step back from that and really assess, like you said, what's it costing me? Yet you know, I mean, I know you were to Google and in, in Silicon Valley, this is the sort of predominant narrative is this is how things happen. You know, I mean, you get and I think the danger to me is that, you know, people use outliers like Elon Musk as their role models. And then they wonder, you know, why they end up with the same results. I mean, I've joked that I said, you know, if you work 120 hours a week, you're not going to build Tesla. You're probably going to crash one. Mm, yeah, totally. Um, and I think that I like what you said about outliers. I do think there are outliers in areas of our life. They're definitely in in the minority. And I I was a human. And most of us are just humans. And when we're humans, 
operating as robots, like you said, we're going to crash the car at a certain point. And that's why I write about this in the book. And I think it's true for all all people who have a capacity to push themselves to the brink. How many times are we going to push ourselves to the brink and then actually push ourselves over it? And what's actually going to stop us and allow us to actually see if this is in any way when we're actually looking in the mirror and enjoyable. And I'm not even saying that enjoyable is something that life always has to be, but do I even like myself? Do I even appreciate anything that I'm achieving here? Or am I just mindlessly trying to collect my worth externally? I talk about that a lot. It's like when you have a... Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I It's funny because I'm, you know, like I said, I've read the book and I have all the quotes in front of me and I very distinctly remember that. Yeah, the, the externalizing of worth. Like when our worth displaces from just having it to having to collect it, you'll be collecting it all day long and you'll still come home and stare through yourself in the mirror and see nothing. If that's If mm-hmm. that's all you think your worth is based on is what you've achieved or who you know or what you've done or how hard you've worked or how in my in my context like how little I've eaten and how little I weigh and how long I've exercised if that's what we have to wake up to and achieve every single day in order for us to be alive in this world that's a really really painful way to live yeah so You know, early in the book, you say in my late 20s, I hit an invisible bottom. My whole day centered around the ticking over of calories. I would eat nothing. Then I would eat everything. I could barely drag myself to the gym to make up for it. I agreed. I would sway standing in the office weighing kale. My body hurt. My skin hurt. My period was gone. What led to this and, and, you know, what got you out of it more importantly? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So to sort of backtrack a little bit, um, the sort of the subtitle for for the book Ghost is Why Perfect Women Shrink. And in the book, I talk about the idea that when your identity is wrapped up in being perfect and when all anyone sees when they look at you is achievement, there is no place for you to put up your hand and say, I'm struggling. There's no way for you to express emotions. And again, the perfect storm of what I talked about earlier about just like the environment that I grew up in that created so much pressure in my system. And the only way that felt in any way, a way that I could express this pain in a way that strengthened me rather than weakened me was to start to mess around with food. So I think I write in the book that I think I started dieting around 11 I honestly think it was earlier than that. <laughs> like I really like the more I the more I spend time with it and reflect on memories that are just coming to me now. Um, I think this happened when I was four, five. I can even remember that. Um, and there's only so long that we can undereat, starve, whatever you want to call it. And in my case, over exercise. And again, that was wrapped up in being an athlete, which made it very complicated in many ways because my disorder actually made me in many ways a brilliant or better athlete than I would have been if I'd been a human at the time. Um, But at a certain point, 
like the the combination of undereating, over exercising, starting diets, failing them, um, the the mental strength that it took to basically shut off any sources of hunger or hunger cues in my body. I would just end up swinging between starving and binging in excess of 10,000 calories in single sit- sittings. Like it was monstrous and brutal. And one quick thing I want to say about that is my experience of that was very intense. I think so many of us have this really complicated relationship with food in our body. And it's often a symptom of us trying to either control or express pain or numb it in some kind of way. But it got to age 28, where I'd probably been on over 100 diets. I couldn't even stick on one for even a day at that point. So I was just so out of control. And yeah, my body was breaking. Like I could barely get out of bed in the morning. I'd get slammed with this lethargy. And that's what I call the break, or I think in the book, or I know in the book, the reckoning. It's like, this Mm. is the moment where your body is physically confronting you and saying, listen, (laughs) and how, how am I going to get you to listen? And like, I had to get slammed on the floor. Like it was so painful to be me at that point in my life. I had no other option except to find a new way. Wow. So, uh, it's, I mean, yeah, I think that you've highlighted so many interesting sort of uh, things here in this book. And one of the things that you say uh, early on in the book is that smart children are gifted an easy life. That is the unspoken undertone for our parents who leave us alone and compare our aloof brilliance to our normal siblings, even when they don't mean to, from the parents of other children who watch us glow, casting their darkening eyes down to the average child tangled in their legs. Imperfection is not a coded safety net for gifted children. Uh, and I, I think that that really kind of struck me because of, of the culture I grew up in, um, where, you know, you're constantly around a lot of very gifted children. You know, many of them are your parents, friends, kids. Um, some of them are your own siblings. Like, you know, my sister is without a doubt, absolutely brilliant. I mean, you know, my friends joke that she's every Indian parent's dream come true. Uh, but I've heard you yeah, say that before. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and she is in a lot of ways. Like, so what is the the effect of this? And what would you want parents who are listening to this to know after me reading that quote? I think the big thing that I would want, and actually, I love that you brought this up because I've been getting this question from indirectly or directly from a lot of parents who are reading this book and they're saying, oh, my God, like, how do I raise my child now? And I want to heavily caveat that. I'm not a mother yet, and I do strongly believe that most parents are doing, pretty much all parents are doing the best that they can with what they know. And what I think is often lost when a child is achieving or picking things up easily, or, and I think in often this case, like appearing very independent and self-sufficient, is never forgetting as a parent that perfect goodness and quickness is does not make you waterproof it does not mean that you don't experience the same emotions as any other child in this world and that's something that I talk about assumed ease 
Like there's so much assumed ease, I think, placed, misplaced on people who look like they've got it all together. And this translates up through childhood into the high achieving, struggling people, the people who hide in plain sight, who on the surface are shining and on the inside are in a lot of pain. And perhaps in our childhood, we're not yet experiencing that pain in such an intense way. But when we are confronted, like I always talk about, like the little moments in my childhood where I first failed, no one noticing, and then me committing to make sure that I never failed again. And it was it was in that action that I created what was that curse of confidence and and the the creation of the identity of being perfect. So if you think in any way that you have a child, an invisible child, in the sense that a child that is shining and apparently perfect and picking things up quickly, never forget perfect does not make someone waterproof. And that mm-hmm. goes for children and that goes for grown women too. Like if yours if you know if you think you know someone who is like the type of woman that I am describing, ask how she is, even if she's not asking you to, and especially when she's not asking to you to, because she's probably never learned how to ask for help. One of my favorite um stories that I was told was about babies and how they're born with the capacity to speak and make the sounds of every single language in the world because that's because we're, we're we're malleable and we're flexible and we have that capacity and then over time because of the environment that we're raised in we change and we lose the capacity to make the sounds of perhaps the German language because we're only speaking the English way it's the same for it's the same for gifted children we don't ever learn how to ask for help. We don't ever learn how to say, I got this wrong. We don't ever learn to say, oh, this, I like, I am not sure about this. We don't learn how to say those words. And so we grow up into adults who have no idea how to say, I'm struggling or I need help. Um, and so, of course, like everyone is responsible for their lives and for learning those tools at a certain point. But if you are someone on the outside looking in, child, friend, partner, employee, encourage people to talk about the ways that they're incomplete because we probably don't know how. Mm, wow. I I can relate. I mean, you know, I, I think that this whole idea of sweeping things under the rug is, is very prevalent in Indian culture, particularly when it comes to mental health. We don't talk about it. And, yeah. you know, I think that it's very clear to me that, you know, I mean, it was I think the underlying message in my house growing up was therapy is for crazy people. Then I found myself in a therapist office and I was like, that's nonsense. I'm like, I'm not mm-hmm. crazy. And this is really helpful. I wish I had done this years earlier. Yeah. My favorite way to describe therapy or the coaching that I do with people is you're taking out the rubbish. You're you're first of all like admitting that there is rubbish in your house and then you're kind of looking through it and seeing perhaps, oh maybe this could be recycled or oh maybe like this truly needs to be thrown out. Or oh my God, this stuff's starting to smell and this needs to get out of my house right now. 
This is like basic human maintenance, emotional intelligence, and being able to be with that human part of ourselves, even though it's perhaps a little bit disgusting at first, or you don't really want to look at it. It's, it's like running a household. It's running yourself. We're responsible for clearing what's sitting on us. It's, it's such a huge part of, I don't like the phrase self-care, but it is, it's human care, learning how to speak this language and to be okay with being humans, with needs and having feelings. Um, but you're right. I think that it's in so many different cultures and just even within the cultures of individual families, like emotional literacy is something that is often not taught and not modeled. And it sounds like in your case, shamed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a good way to put it. I, we will get to the, some of the stuff that you said uh, about shame. I do have one question about this. I mean, I know that you wrote this book, um, you know, with the subtitle, you know, Why Perfect Women Shrink. And I wonder what your work around this has shown uh, about the differences in the same issues when it comes to both men and women. I don't think there is any difference. And I'm, I'm in this in the sense that I'm sure there's nuance, but I'm so much in the in the category and belief system of like women, men, non-binary, however you identify. Something that I believe really strongly is that when you write a book for a very specific audience, if you speak to a pain so so directly and so honestly and hopefully clearly, it the lesson transcends beyond just who your perhaps ideal reader is. And so Ghost was subtitled Why Perfect Women Shrink because that is absolutely the the woman that I want to talk to. But I don't think, and I know, just need to read the reviews on on Amazon and hearing directly from men. This experience is one that is universal for those who are in any way have some kind of core identity that is wrapped up in being perfect. And I think so many of us have variations in intensity of, of that. Whether we're conscious of it or not at this point, that desire to be seen as correct and good and in line and shining, I think that's a universal experience. I do think there's a certain degree of nuance, perhaps in the way that the body comes into it, just purely on the basis that the ways that women's bodies have been talked about just historically in, in human history is a little bit different, um, like throwing in all the objectification and beauty standards and all that kind of thing. Like I do think there's perhaps some nuance to that, but men are not immune to that in our society either. And so I think the experience is one that's universal and then everyone's got what I would call their own flavor of pain in relation to it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm, wow. So <clears throat> I, I want to come back to to the things you said about vulnerability um, later in the book. But one of the things that you talk about at the very beginning and, and, or, and when you get into this idea of method acting, which I think is very relevant to vulnerability, is you say the way masks are protect uh, the ways masks protect us are intertwined with why ghost women shrink shrinking to be visible as an expression of an internal pain our masks are the camouflage we wear in public to conceal what sits below the surface masks are a reaction to the ways we were not loved the ways we were not held and the ways we were not acknowledged putrid and unprocessed poison and mm-hmm. i think the the reason this really struck me um, was because you know I ended up writing this piece uh, titled "The Psychology of Building an Audience," and one of the things I made a point to highlight was that when you're a public figure of any kind, you're wearing a mask, no matter what anybody says. Like, there's just no way in the public eye that 
you can be a hundred percent authentic simply because like, if you literally are, you know, a hundred percent authentic, say whatever the hell is on your mind, that has consequences. I mean, as we've learned from our president, um, and the thing is, I don't know, think people know where that line is. So with that in mind, I mean, given that you wrote this, I'm just curious what, you know, what your view is on that. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating question. And thank God he's a former president now. But I actually would like, I'd love to use the collective experience we're all going through now with COVID because we now all have experience of wearing a physical mask on our face. And I don't know about you, but I've heard these conversations, people having that, oh my God, I feel like my face is just slack behind this mask. Like no one can actually see whether I'm smiling or whether I'm angry or whether I'm upset. You can't even really see my eyes if they were tearing up because this mask is covering. And that is the experience that we wear with our emotional masks as well. Um, and some of those can be really destructive, but I like the nuance of the question. It's like, how do I show up in an authentic and vulnerable way, but within limits um, of how much I actually want to share with a large audience? Um, and I think that, I think it's one, it's a, it's like a personal comfort or boundary perspective, but something I like to say to my clients is not everyone gets the benefit or the honor of your pure vulnerability. Like mm. not everyone gets to see that, but some people need to get to see that. And, and those are the people that are you're in your life who you have personal connections to. Like we have to have the masks off and we, or we have to have awareness of them and the way they show up. And we need to get comfortable taking these masks off if we're going to have an authentic life or authentic relations with anyone, period. Because if you're wearing a mask to preserve, in my case, the perfect identity and how that, how the mask served me was I had like a bitch mask, an unapproachable mask. Everything was stay away from me 10 yards. Don't come too close. Cause if you do, you'll see the cracks and I can't, I can't deal with that. I think what you're talking about is a little bit different. I think it's really important to hold precious the things about us that either are very personal or that aren't that, that we haven't even wrapped ourselves around yet. That's really yeah. important to be in consent with ourselves around what we want to share with people. Um, I think it's I think it's generous to share honestly, especially if you're you have a wonderful community and you have people who are wanting to have an authentic experience with you. Absolutely, that's something that you want to be authentic. But there's a difference, I think, between being authentic and being globally vulnerable. Um, I think those are different things. And it's really important to know in yourself where that line is. I I love that. I mean, I think that's such a great way to describe it, like global vo vulnerability versus authenticity. I mean, I, I think for me, it was just, you know, the experience of being on a reality t TV show kind of made that very clear that, you know, media shapes perception and, you know, you are shaping public perception with everything that you do and say in the public eye. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, has to be treated 
delicately, like you said, boundaries. I mean, that it's funny because I don't remember who I was talking to the other day, but I we brought up Seth Godin. I know you're a fan. And if you notice, there's one thing that never comes up in any of Seth Godin's work, and it's his family. Mm-hmm. There's never a mention of his wife or his son. Like, it just doesn't, you know, and it seems to me like that's his boundary. Like, this is not, you know, for the world. Yeah. And it's it's a beautiful one because, I mean, I've noticed that too, but it's it's an unspoken one. It's just it's not available. And yeah. I think that that's something that is important to reckon with within yourself because you're right. This is this is public record. <laughs> and also something I've learned along the way as well is that like perhaps your degree of vulnerability is not where everyone's degree of vulnerability is. And so where, where is that, where is that line? Um, and I think I, I mean, I don't think I know I have certain ones in my own experience. Like if you've read ghosts, there's a lot in there that is not, (laughs) that is, I guess what some people would say embarrassing for perhaps me to admit or brutally true and honest or, overly vulnerable whatever you like some people say they can't even read it because it's just so confronting um and i get that and i i sat with myself like how much how much do i share of myself in this book and i don't want to um i don't want to overstate this but this book was written for people who don't know how to admit this about themselves and so when I was running it through my body like do I share the fact that like I had these abscesses in my mouth from not being able to have any degree of self-care for myself when I was in the pits of my war with food and body is that something that I'm willing to have out there and the answer was in my case yes because that's how low it was. And it was the same me that was having that experience that was showing up and flooring people at work or inspiring people at the gym with how much I could squat or how many goddamn burpees I could do in seven minutes. Like it was the same me and people had no idea because the mask was so powerful. Um, And so I just, I think that our degree of being able to be vulnerable starts with our ability to be honest with ourselves first um and i think i mean we all have work to do with that yeah wow so you know um i want to finish here with uh the whole idea of, of sort of healing all of this because there are a couple of things that you talk about when we get into the section in healing, you say your mind is a weapon or a wand, make yours a force for good. Your body does not know time, only sensation. Every day you must commit to embodying the energetic state of a woman who is no longer a ghost, act like her, speak like her. And then you go on to say, to heal our invisibility, we must make our inner child feel safe, be the parent we did not have. This work is not about blame. We're not here to shame our caregivers. They did the best they could. It's our responsibility to reparent our inner child so she does not feel abandoned or unloved anymore. It's also our responsibility to find ways to reawaken the playfulness and joy the perfection robbed from her. We must give our wounded inner child permission to fail without repercussion, to play with no expectation of victory, and to learn to trust that our love for her is not finite or conditional. Um and I, I think that that struck me so much because, you know, you go into therapy, what do you do half the time in therapy? You're talking about you know, your parents and how they fucked you up. Um, 
and all the things that they did wrong. I mean, it, and it took me a really long time to come to terms with this idea that, you know what, they did the best they could with what they knew, like you said. Because um, I, I remember for the longest time, I would question the career advice they gave me. And then, you know, after five, six years, it was like, given their context and their background, of course, they would tell me to pursue something that is stable because they came from a world in which your outcomes were binary, where it was either poverty or security, nothing in between. So, but, but I don't think that we, we, you know, ever want to admit that or understand that. So why is that? And how do we get to that point where we stop victimizing ourselves for the things that have not turned out the way that we hope they would? Yeah. I love that you brought that up because it's such a big theme in ghost is that sense of personal responsibility and being able to take that and give it to yourself over and over and over again. And sounds like you had like wonderful parents in many ways. I had wonderful parents in many ways. And I always say this, no one gets what they need. Everyone is a product of wounding. That's like the dubious honor of being a human being raised by other human beings. And so where does that leave us when, right, sure, you show up perhaps finally ready to talk about your emotions and then all you can do is talk about the pain of the past. And I have a couple of things I like to say about or I feel strongly about this. One is that rumination is different from revolution. Rumination is the enemy of revolution. And we can spend time with our past, always called past bleeding diamonds. There's so much value in understanding where we've come from and what has happened, transpired, what's been done to us, what have we been, what have we absorbed from other people, what are you going to do about it? And I think that that's where personal responsibility comes in because we are sitting on a gold mine of our own personal experience but so often we just want to sit there and drown in it. And we have to pull what we learn about our past into the future. So we can't just stay there and say, this is the reason why I am the way that I am. And look at this person and point a finger over here and they could have done better. It's like at certain points, like enough. Like what is the life that you want to live in this world? We get really, really comfortable being in pain. That's another thing that none of us want to admit. Pain is very comfortable. Suffering is very comfortable because it's known. And once you reach a point where you're even ready just a little bit, just to take even the tiny little belief that perhaps things can change, then you have to give yourself all the permission in the world to try a new way, to learn a new way, to not be a skeptic or immediately shun ideas or approaches that perhaps you have in the past. We have to be willing to understand where we've come and then take responsibility for choosing what we want to do with that. That's taking responsibility for our own lives. That's taking the power back into our own lives. It's reclaiming, in some cases, our body, often our worth, always our power. Stop giving that to other people. Stop letting that bleed away into old stories and past experiences and say, from now on, I'm taking responsibility for this. It's never linear. It's all an experiment. 
am I willing to believe that I can actually enjoy my life? Like that's, that's how, that's the base level of it. And I can say this from personal experience, having lived 25 plus closer to 30 years in a huge amount of pain, anyone can do this work. Anyone can decide that they are actually someone worth knowing and that life is not something that's just an endless pursuit of pain or suffering or recreating the past and the experiences of people that have come before us. We all have a choice and everyone's path is a little bit different. There's no defined timeline, but we're all people worth knowing. And I just can't say that strongly enough. Anyone can benefit from understanding themselves better. So I, I want to finish um, with probably what I think is probably my favorite quote from the entire book. Um, and that is that you said, endlessly proving our worth steals the glitter of everyday magic. And I, I think the the reason that this really stood out to me is, you know, what do we do all day long on the Internet? We prove our worth by sharing, you know, the highlight reels of our lives, you know in a world where everybody's accomplishments are on display, you can see how many followers somebody has, how many books they've sold, you know, um, people post their income reports. I mean, I, I think this is, you know, toxic. I mean, to me, the ultimate irony was when I stopped reading income reports, my income went up. But um, what I wonder about this is, is, you know, in a world where this is the case, how do you stop proving your worth at every turn? Oh, it makes such a great such a great question um and think of a very simple answer which is learning how to be with yourself in an empty room where there's nothing there there's nothing that you can point to and say see I achieved this there's nothing that you can put on to distract you from yourself and just trying to be there and noticing how all the different ways you want to crawl out of your skin and all of the stories that start spinning or perhaps the most loudest ones and learning how to be. And I'm saying that it sounds very simple. It's not. I think that's a huge process. But I think something that my friend said to me recently when I was kind of spinning out about something, um, and I apologize if you don't allow swearing on this podcast, but she's like, I need you to sit down and not get up until you remember who the fuck you are. And I, I believe strongly that none of us need more knowledge. We don't need to consume anything more. The wisdom is here. It's in our bodies and it's us remembering who we are before the world told us how to be, before our parents told us how to be, before anyone told us how to be it's us remembering how we came into this world with the beautiful gifts that we have with the personalities that we have how can we get back to remembering who we are and so much of that is the peeling off of the masks so much of that is understanding why we're constantly trying to look for ways to justify our existence or shrink ourselves into an ideal that we think we need to be i believe it's all a remembering and if we all just spent a little bit more time internally focused on ourselves rather than looking around the world for the answers, I think we would all enjoy our lives or at least know ourselves a little bit more honestly. Mm, wow. 
Wow. Um, well, I think that that makes a beautiful place to um, wrap up our conversation. Um, so as you know, from having heard the show, I have one final question for you. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, yeah, I knew this was coming. Um, and I tried not, I didn't want to be prepared for it. I wanted to see perhaps where our conversation led. And what's, what's coming to me now is that, and maybe you can tell me if this is true for you as well, but there's been many phases of my life where I think I've been unmistakable. Um, I was pretty unmistakable when I was young and winning everything in school. I was pretty unmistakable when I was like not to blow my own trumpet, but a really accomplished student athlete. I was pretty unmistakable when I was working as a creative director. People remembered me when I left the room and none of it mattered because I didn't know myself. And I look back at all those times and I almost stare, I stare through those experiences because I wasn't there. Like me, like with my heart beating, filled in and colorful with my own humanity and actually enjoying what I saw, that was never there. And I think that to answer your question, I think only we know what makes us unmistakable. And I think it's when we can see ourselves and say, yep, that's me. And hopefully I'm proud of who that is. And it's not even that uh, someone else can say, yeah, like Iona's mistakeable or Srini's mistakeable, unmistakable. We can see that. We know. Are we unmistakable to ourselves? And in, and in, is it in a good way? Or is it in a destructive way? Because I think it can go both ways. Um, and I think that I don't know if I'm unmistakable yet, but it feels like I'm moving towards being able to really feel that about the work that I'm doing and the message I'm sharing and just even how I enjoy my life these days. That to me is trending towards unmistakable and it feels really good. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me. And if you want to spend a bit more time with me, sionaholloway.com. And my book is Ghost Why Perfect Women Shrink. And it's on Amazon and pretty much wherever else you can buy a book. Um, and I'm probably most active on Instagram and I'm Iona Holloway there as well. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.